Brad. I'm the lead pastor here. It is wonderful to meet you. If I haven't met you yet, this is our handshake. And so here it is. Thank you. Uh, uh, I want to talk today. Today we're on our, I think it's our fifth thing on Ephesians. And so to catch you up, here's what's been going on. Ephesians 1 is simple. This is Paul writing a letter to the people of Ephesians saying, this is now who you are in Christ. For those who have been here for the past six weeks, this is review. Okay, for those who haven't, we'll catch up. So previously at Bethany Ballard, this is how it should go. Uh, Ephesians 1, this is who you are in Christ. Ephesians 2, because of this is who you are in Christ, uh, there is no more divisions between people who are different than you. Jew, Gentile, uh, racial, theological, there's no difference. We're all chasing Christ. The divided wall is gone. That's Ephesians 2. Ephesians 3, does anyone remember what Ephesians 3 was? Me either. Ephesians 3. <laughs> no, really, what was Ephesians 3? Ah, Ephesians 3, Paul is preaching to the Gentiles. He starts talking about unity. Uh, he, he becomes a servant of the law. Ephesians 4, he d- then begins to talk about the way we're all gifted, how we are all one body of Christ. And then now in Ephesians, the uh, last half of Ephesians 4 and the first part of Ephesians 5, he's saying, now that you know who you are, now that you see the family that you're in, now that you've received this grace that we talk about in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Now that you've received this grace, you've been living by this grace, this is who you are now, this is now how we should live. So he spends the first half of the book, this is what you were, second half of the book, now this is how you should act now that you are in Christ. We following? Okay. When I was growing up, we had one house. It was at 7870 Samantha Circle, Anaheim, California, 92807. I can give you the phone number too, but it's still my mom's number and you don't want to talk. Uh, but when I went to college, I was the youngest. When I went to college, I moved out, took my surfboard and all my toys down to San Diego. I come back for a weekend about a year later, and dad and mom sit me down and go, we're selling the house, which was like, oh, this is the one I grew up in. But it makes total sense. I live in San Diego. Uh, my brother lives in, uh, my other brother lived, moved up here to Redmond. I had another brother in Texas, and my sister lived in Palmdale. So we were no longer at this house, and it's time for mom and dad to start a new adventure. And so dad says, I want you to come with me and see the house that I'm thinking of buying. Mom and dad had been there a couple times, so I tag along with dad. And dad was a house builder. He built homes, he built offices, he, he was a builder. And so dad goes to this house. It's the second or third time he's been in this house. This time he brings a ladder and a flashlight to an open house. <laughs> if you're a realtor, what are you thinking? This is weird. But here's my dad. The realtor's given the tour, and my dad's over there on the wall going, hmm, Okay. Then he goes to the garage. It's a three-car garage, and everyone's amazed at the third-car garage. And he goes, I don't know why we need a third car. And so dad says, starts looking around. He, he finds the plumbing, where the plumbing comes in, where the plumbing goes out, and he makes a little note. And then they're going in the back, and they're looking at the kitchen and amazed at the kitchen, and dad starts feeling the walls again, starts looking up, going, what is this, what's that? And I'm watching him kind of embarrassed. What are you doing, dad? There's like 10 people here, and you're the weird one. And, uh, and then uh, he brings his ladder and flashlight in and he asks the realtor where the crawl space thing and the realtor goes, it's over there. And he goes, thank you. And so people are leaving and all you see is dad's legs, the ladder, and his upper body in the attic as people are walking out and he's doing this. He's looking around. And so he closes the thing, we leave. 
And I'm in the car on the way back. I was like, Dad, what the heck were you up to? And he says, hang on. He calls the realtor, makes the offer, hangs up, and he says, now, here's what's going on. Everyone was so fixed on what the house already was that they missed this. The walls in the kitchen can all be removed and can open up everything. The roof line is 20 feet higher than the ceiling. I could put a second story in an office. I don't need a third, core, a third car garage. Uh, I don't have a third car. I have an RV space out there. If I ever want to get a third car, I'll build a tent. But the third car garage can be walled off, and then we can make a laundry room, which will open up the space in the bedroom where the laundry machine is. And, the laundry, and, and he starts going through all of these things. He says, Brad, by the time I move your mom into this place, it's going to be worth 25% more than what I buy it for. This is what I'm doing. So he looks at this thing, and Dad was good at this. It wasn't just construction, it was people. He looked at the bones of the house and said, this has so much potential. I'm going to buy it as it is, but I'm never going to leave it that way. I'm going to make it better. In essence, this is what Paul is saying again to the people in Ephesus. Hey, we've experienced grace. We know about grace We've been, uh, we've been bought with grace. We've, it's by grace that we've been saved. We're into a new family. We've been adopted. There's no more divisions. We are gifted and all of this. And now he says, now it's time for the transformation because we were bought the way we were, but we're not supposed to stay the way we were. And so Paul goes on this whole thing about what we should do now. Paul's point in all of this is that we have been invited to this deeply transforming grace. And this grace doesn't lead us in the same way. This grace will inform us. This grace will expose us. And this grace will redeem us. If you have bulletins, the bulletin words are vastly different than what is in I'm going to talk about because I changed everything last night. Okay? The three, th- the three words would be that grace informs, grace exposes, grace redeems. And this is what Paul is trying to say to the people in Ephesus in this section of Ephesians. The first thing is that grace informs. If you have your Bibles, flip back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. I think it'll be on the screens if I did that right. Uh, He says this, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of ignorance that is due to the hardening of their hearts. They've lost all sensitivity. They have given themselves over to sensuality, so they indulge in every impurity, and they are full of greed. Paul is not mincing words here, is he? He's pretty strong in what he's saying. They're separated. They're ignorant. Uh, And when he says they have the hardness of hearts, if you're a Jewish person hearing this, you hear this and you go, oh, like Pharaoh had the hardness of heart back in Exodus. They're not thinking straight. They're stubborn. The hardness of heart is the word obtuse. How many of you have been called obtuse? I have been obtuse before. We had one person raise their hand. Sorry, John. But I've been called obtuse before. It means this, that you are slow to understand. You are annoying and insensitive. Yes, I have lived into that. But Paul is saying here that these Gentile people, the ones who aren't marked by the grace of Christ, are annoyingly insensitive and slow to understand. They have a dull perception of what is right. They are morally blind. And the hardness of their heart is leading them into darkness. So Paul's saying that this is what you were. 
before you experienced grace. You were hardness of heart. You were spiritually obtuse. You didn't understand what was going. And he says in verse 20, this, that, however, is not the way that you learned. Paul is backtracking here saying, you, are, you were like this, but now that you've been informed by grace, this, your life should be different. This is not what you've learned. He says in verse 20, that's not what you learned. In verse 21, when you heard about Christ and were taught in him, in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitudes of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in the righteousness and holiness. Paul says this in a number of letters. He says in Corinthians, he says in Colossians, it's this idea of something old, putting off the old, putting on the new. Putting off the old clothing, putting on the new t-shirt. But he says something interesting here. He uses three words that give us the image of school. He says first, that you have learned. Then he says you've been taught. And then he says that you have been in, that you've been taught, you've been learned. And he, he's going on this, this whole idea of school. He says first, you've learned something about Jesus, the substance that they ever, that you've known, you have learned everything about Christ. He's implying to them, you've been informed of this. You've learned about this. He's reviewing for them that they have learned about Christ. They've learned about grace. And that because of that, they know better that they are being called to this totally different way of life. Then he says they've heard. He says if you've heard Christ, in other words, that Jesus was the one who was doing the teaching here. You've heard about this. You've been listening. Jesus was teaching. Paul's assuming that the voice here that was doing the teaching was Jesus himself. And then he says that you've learned, they've heard, and then they've been taught. That is to say that Jesus, in addition to be the one who's doing the, the, the teaching, Jesus, the one who's doing the, con- the, uh, the learning, he's also saying that Jesus is the context of which you're being taught in. When you put all three things together, Paul is saying, look, you've been formed differently than what you were before you came to Christ. You've been, you, you, this grace has informed you. Jesus is the subject. Jesus is the object. Jesus is the environment of which you've all been shaped. In the beginning of this passage, Paul says, your hard heart led to darkness. Grace has informed you of the way of Christ. And now I know you've learned it. I know you've heard it. I know you've experienced it. You know better than to act like you once were in darkness. You've changed. You've been, you've been in the classroom for a long time. You've heard better. You've learned better. You know better. I had a football coach that would tell me all the time when I messed up, Brad, you know better than this. We've gone over this how many times? You know better than to make that mistake again. My dad would tell me all the time when I made a mistake in construction, Brad, you know better than this. You're better than this. Why are you still making the same mistake you made three weeks ago? You know that's not how you put a nail in wood. It's the simple things that I was terrible at. But he said, you would know better than this. I say the same thing to Judah. He's two and a half years old. He knows better. And I say, Judah, we've talked about this how many times? And he looks at me and goes, da, la, 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 la. (laughs) He should know better by now, right? How many of you feel like you should know better when you make the same mistake over and over and over again? This is exactly what Paul's saying. 
people of Ephesus, you've experienced Christ. He's informed you. You've learned. You sat in the classroom of Jesus. You know better than this. You know better than what you previously did when you were outside of Christ. He calls them Gentiles. You're different now. Your life is different. This is why he says in verse 22, the old way of your life is gone. The new way of life is to be put on. The old way, don't even deal with that anymore. It's old, it's ratty, it's bad. It needs to be tossed out like a t-shirt that I used to have from college on. And then all of a sudden I get married and it's gone. (laughs) I don't know what happened to it. It said USC on it. Maybe that's what happened. But it's gone because I didn't need it anymore. It didn't fit right. This old way of life, this old way of doing things wasn't the new way. It didn't mesh with what Christ had called them to do. So he says, you know better than this. Grace has informed you into a new way of doing life, but grace does more than inform us. Once we're informed, when we accept this grace, grace does that something else. It says grace exposes us. It's scary when grace exposes us. We've put off the old way of living. We've learned a new way. We've put off the old standards and are adopting new ones. But this is the thing about grace. When we've been shown grace, we now have to live up to the grace that we've been shown. We have this idea that I can be forgiven. And Paul talks about this in Romans. And and we're doing Romans in the fall. We'll get to this later. But Paul talks about this idea in Romans. Where you've been shown grace. Does this mean that you can continue being bad? No. Grace exposes the places in your life where you need to shape up. And so he says, you live in accordance with the grace that you have been given. You've been given so much grace. You've learned about this grace. Now, raise the bar a little bit. Do better. Paul is calling them to this idea, this notion that we in in our culture are afraid to talk about. We don't talk about it much. He's talking about this thing called holiness. Have we ever heard of it? Probably, but we don't spend time with it. Paul says, because you have been given grace, your next call is to be holy. It's not just to obey the rules. Your next call is to be set apart, to be holy. Uh, means this, to be holy means that you're set apart. It means to be different. It means to live in such a way uh, that you are radically different than those around you. It doesn't mean that you're separate. It doesn't mean that you move to a commune and live all by yourself on the river, which might sound nice for some of you. But holiness, it can't be lived in a vacuum of solitude, according to the passages here. Paul's saying that you are called to live holy lives, to be set apart in order to live the specific meaning and purpose for which you were called. Paul says you're holy. You're called to be holy. And then he goes on and gives some extensive examples of what we should do. And since holiness is never supposed to be lived in a vacuum, holiness can't be lived all by yourself, he gives us examples of how we can be holy. He gives examples in Ephesians 4. We'll go through them uh, quickly. There's a lot of them. We'll try and breeze through. He gives examples of them and how we should be acting when we're around other people. Because that's when holiness is hard. It's real easy to be holy by yourself. It's really hard to be holy when the guy next to you is making you angry. So Paul says, Here is what, here's how to be holy. And he doesn't just give them rules. He says, this is the, what we should attain for. And you'll notice this when we go through. This is the rule. This is the negative, And this is why. 
rules without reason always ends up in rebellion. And so Paul is given reasons why we should be living this way. So he gives these commands. He says in verse 25, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood. There's the command. Here's what you should do. Speak truthfully to your neighbor. Why? For we are all, for we are all members of one body. The Greek word for falsehood uh, means the lie. It's not just lie. It's the lie. It's the lie of idolatry. It's the lie of self. It's also the lie that you tell yourself to make yourself feel better. It's the lie where you portray yourself in order to be accepted. It's the lie that we're living. It's the lies that we're believing. It's not just the lies you're telling. It's all of the mistruths that we come along. So he's saying, put off falsehood. He's saying, be honest. Be reliable. If he's talking about community here, community cannot be built without trust. Trust cannot be built without truth. So the first step in being holy and living in peace with the people around you, be completely honest. Be completely honest about who you are. Be completely honest when you speak. And then he says this, in your anger, in verse 26, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're anger, angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. There's, an, there's a distinction here. We think when we hear anger, that angry is bad. When someone's angry, they're sinning. No. It's okay to be angry. Angry is a normal emotion. God was angry. Jesus got angry, turned over some tables. It's okay to be angry. They were angry at evil. It's how they, how they responded to their anger. That was the problem. So Paul says, it's okay to be angry, but in your, ang- in your anger, here's some guidelines. In your anger, don't sin. Make sure your anger isn't because of your pride. Make sure your anger isn't because of spite or malice or animosity or revenge. Why do you get angry? So-and-so said something about me. They've been throwing shade. Is that what they say now? They've been saying some, they've been saying some evil thing. They've been gossiping about me, and I've got to set them straight. I'm mad. Well, what is that? Pride. Someone said someone did this. Now I, someone hit me. Now I've got to hit them back. What's that? Revenge. In your anger, make sure you're angry for the right reasons. Make sure that your anger, you do not sin. And then there's another thing that says, says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. How many of you ever heard this and said, this means that I can't go to bed angry? We've heard that? Totally not true. It's not saying that. It's not saying that you can't go to bed angry. If, or, or the sun can't set when you're mad. Because now, in some parts of Canada and Alaska, if you're mad, you're allowed to be mad for a very, very long time. Or in Antarctica, you can't be mad at all because the sun's not even coming up. So that's not what it's meaning. It's saying in your anger, don't let it stew. We have this thing where we get mad and what do we do? We stuff it. We let it go down into our bellies and we swallow our anger and then we become extremely bitter people. Or we have a very, very, very short fuse. And the slightest... Facebook post can set us off for months because we have all this anger inside of us and it poisons us. It says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. In other words, don't let your anger stew inside of you where it turns you into a bitter person. Some of us would be well served 
taking a nap or going to bed before we address our anger. If I'm angry and it's after 10 o'clock, I'm going to say more dumb things that's going to make me more angry because I didn't articulate them well. Sometimes it's good to take a nap before you address your anger. Just make sure you address it. Don't let it stew. Don't let it poison you. Don't let it rot inside of you is what Paul is saying. Process it. Don't let anger control you. Don't let the sun go down. Lastly, don't give uh, opportunity to the devil. For he knows how fine the line is between righteous anger and between unrighteous anger. And how hard human beings uh, have a hard time dealing with their, this responsibility. So Satan loves to lurk around and tell you, oh, you can just swallow that. You don't have to deal with it. You can, you can be there and your anger turns into hatred. And then your hatred turns into violence or your hatred and your anger breaks up the unity that is the church. Paul is talking about that unity thing. And he says here, don't be angry. Address your anger. Deal with your anger. Don't be controlled by it. And then he gets into this. Anyone who has been caught stealing, don't steal anymore. But, go, but, but, but they must work. Do something useful with their hands. And they, that they may have something to share with those in need. It's the eighth command in Exodus. Thou shalt not steal, but it goes further. Don't steal. If you can, get a job. That provides for your family so you don't have to steal anymore. And then give something back to your community. It's this ecosystem that Paul is talking about. Instead of taking from the community, give back to it. Contribute to it. This is the new life. This is the new thing that Paul's talking, calling us to. This is the new humanity. Then he says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. But only what is helpful in building each other up. In accordance to the needs of that may benefit those who listen. The word here for evil or for unwholesome is this word saparos, which means rotten tree or rotten fruit. When it's applied to the talk, it's talking about something that's dishonest, vulgar, or unkind. It's referring to the, the words that we say that affect our hearers. James talks about this where he says, your tongue is the most powerful part of the human body. You can build people up or you can cut people down. He says, don't let any of that unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Your words should impart grace. Your words should impart truth. The grace that you've received should bring forth truth to the, your community. Then he says this weird part. It's not really weird when you think about it. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit is within us. It's sealed us. It's working in us. When we start doing these things of lying, when we start doing the things of stealing, when we're angry, defined by anger, uh, the Holy Spirit is not working in us. It's trying to work, but we're telling it to go away. We're grieving the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is active in every single one of us. And when we grieve it, when we start doing these actions, we're pushing it away. We're pushing it down. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Be kind be compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ has forgiven you. Follow God's example. This is 5 verse 1. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ has loved us and given, gave himself up for us as a fragrant uh, offering and sacrifice to God. Be kind and compassionate. If you can summarize all of those little commands, the Ten Commandments of Ephesians into this, be kind, be compassionate. Why? Why do this? 
because you are dearly loved children. The reason behind the rule is because this is who you are now. You are dearly loved. The grace exposes us after it informs us. It exposes us and says, this is who you are. Kind, compassionate, dearly loved children. Now, walk in the way of that love, just as Christ loved you. This is who you are. This is what you should do. Most of the time we get these commands different. We get them reversed. We say, this is what you should do. That way you become what you should be. It's not what formation is about. This formation that Paul's saying is, you are already dearly loved. Now that you know better, start living like you already are. He does a play on words here, and, and it's, it's, uh, it's the biggest dad joke in Ephesians. Here's why. To be kind and compassionate is the word Christos or Krestos in Scripture or in Greek. Krestos. And then he goes on and says, which because of Christ, Christos. So he says, be kind and compassionate, Christos, Christos. And I can see Paul chuckling. (laughs) I wonder if they'll get this one. It sounds the same. Be like Christ. Why? Because you are Christ. Because you've been been informed of Christ. Christ is being built up in you. Be Christos because of Christos. And the dad joke started there and ended there and no one got it. Great. It's a good dad joke that when no one gets it. Paul's saying, This is who you are. Be kind, be compassionate like Christ was. Be Christos like Christ was because this is who you are. Stop being selfish. Stop being mean. Stop holding grudges. And then he says, But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, because these are, this is improper for God's holy people. In other words, he's talking about selfishness and greed and only thinking of yourself. He says here, stop using sex for your own advantage. Stop defining it by what you think it should be. It was meant by God for the context of marriage. Stop using it for anything else. Now here's the trick in Ephesus. All of these things, from sexual practices to lying to cheating to all of the things that Paul talked about, all of these were considered culturally okay. You can do and act like all of this in that culture and be totally right. And so Paul is saying your culture says it's this way, like the Gentiles do. This is the norm for them. But you have a different calling Just because culture says something's okay doesn't mean that it is okay biblically. Biblical isn't always lawful. Just because it's okay in culture, Paul says, it's not okay for you to do. You are different here. You have been marked by grace. You have been called by grace. You've been informed by grace. This grace exposes you. So break off with that old way of thinking. Break off with the cultural norms and start living according to the call that you've been given. Just as Christ gave you, follow the example of Christ as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. This is all Paul's talking about here. Our responsibility. Walk like Christ did. This grace will make you different. Not only different, but it'll make you live different from the ways around you. 
It'll push you into the new life. The old t-shirt's gone. The old way of life is gone. You have a new set of clothing to, to fit into. Now fit into it. The idea of holiness, sanctification. You are already saved. Now live like it. Live what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of you. Allow the Holy Spirit to transform you, to change you, to make you more and more like Christ. Why? Because we know better. We know to be like Jesus. Our theology and what we know about God should change our ethics and how we live about God. It should change everything about us. When grace exposes us, it pushes us towards holiness. A holiness is not a condition that we can simply drift into. We need to live into it. It's not passive. We need to work towards it. It's hard work, sanctification, but you already have it. Sanctification is a, is a fancy theology word. Here's the best way to, 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 that I've heard it described, and maybe it works for you. How many of you remember buying DVDs or CDs? You get the DVD, you go home. It's wrapped in, in nuclear-proof plastic. You own the DVD. It is yours. Your job now is to figure out how the heck to open it. And you start peeling away the plastic, and you start looking this is holy. This is holiness. I have it. I can't get rid of it. God loves me. I'm saved. I'm marked by grace. But now I am trying to work out what I already own completely. Holiness, sanctification. You have it. Justification is how God sees you. Sanctification is how we see it. Paul is saying this is the process of sanctification. This is the process of working out what God has already put in. This will only happen when you firmly grasp the grace that you've been given. When you truly realize who you are in Christ, then your desire to grow will be within you, and then you will want to live a life worthy of the calling and fitting for the grace that you have received. The grace that you've been called into God's new humanity. Mr. Rogers summarized it. There's a a movie about him out now. Try your best to make goodness attractive. That's one of the toughest assignments you'll ever be given. That's what we do here. Try our best to make Christ attractive. When we reflect grace, when we reflect the grace that we've been given, when we reflect the grace that we've been, that's informed us, people will be drawn to it. The light of grace will shine, and people will, are attracted to the light. Grace informs. Grace exposes. And lastly, the grace reflects. Look what Paul says, and this is the point he's been leading up to. For you were once in darkness, this is what we read earlier, but now you were in light. You are in light, in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists of goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will rise in you. That's an old hymn that they say that the people of Ephesians would have sang in their church. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul is quoting back to them something they know. But this is what he's trying, there's this little theme that Paul's picking up. In Genesis 1, it's a theme throughout all scripture. In Genesis 1, it says that God spoke into 
what and created what? He spoke into darkness and created light. So there's darkness and light. And then Revelations 22, it says in Revelations 22, 5, there will be no more night. This is at the end of time. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. In the beginning of the scriptures, we have God separating light from darkness. At the end of scripture, there's no more darkness. In the Gospel of John, he says it this way, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he goes on and says, in the, the, that, was it up on the screen? It, 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 verse, uh, in John 1, it says that Jesus was the light that came into the darkness. And then in John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness again, but will have the light of life. So we have this theme going on and on, light and dark light and dark. Again, in John, there's this, whenever someone comes to meet Jesus, they come and and the author's quick to point out, they came in darkness. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to see Jesus when? At night. And then he, next time we see Nicodemus, after he learns about Jesus, after he comes to Jesus, he comes in the daytime, in in the light time. So there's this idea of darkness and light. Christ is calling us out by his grace, from darkness, and putting us into light. And so Paul here is catching on to the theme that's all throughout Scripture, that there's darkness that we come from, and there's light that we come to. He says, you were in darkness, but now you are in light. Their lives are no longer fit for darkness. They've been exposed. They've been illuminated. They've been changed from darkness to light. It's a radical transformation that's taken place because now they are united with the light of the world, with Christ. And now everything about them has the chance to be illuminated. Which means this, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, allow Christ to shine in you. When we're awoken because of grace, there are dead places that are in each and every one of our lives. Places that we're hiding in darkness places that need to be redeemed, places that need to see the light of day, and they can come back, and he says, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and allow Christ to shine on you. How do those dead places in our lives receive, receive the light of Christ? We allow Christ to shine on them. We have to name them. The broken places, the dead places, the ones we'd rather not talk about, the ones that we'd rather change the subject, the ones that we do our best to hide in, they're all still in us. And the best way to get them, and the best way to heal from them and to move on from them is allow Christ to speak life into them. The dead spaces in our life, Christ brings to life and shines on them. Here's what it might look like for a lot of us. Maybe you've been battling with your addiction for, and you've been winning for a number of years. This is a dark place in your life. And now that you're down the road in your recovery a little bit, you say, this is a darkness that I've had. And God has shone, shone light onto this. He's awoken me. His grace has informed me. And now my darkness can become light and I can go back to walk next to somebody who is just coming to grips with their darkness and I can walk along with them and my victory and my light can shine into their darkness. 
We see how this works. The, the broken places in our lives can be redeemed to show other people light in their broken places. Darkness to light. My anxiety, I've been dealing with it for a while. I have a lot of it. I worry about not having things to worry about oftentimes. But <laughs> what's in, what's in, what happened with me is I'm able to, because I'm still anxious a lot, but I'm over here, I can meet with somebody who is just in the grips of anxiety and maybe my brokenness and the way that grace has transformed my anxiety can shine light on the road of theirs. And their anxiety can be reflected and be made to light. All of us have these broken places in our lives. All of us have the missteps. All of us have them. And when we bring them out, when we say to Christ, look, I'm exposed by your grace, light this up, bring light to it, bring healing to it, so that I might be used to bring healing to other people. This is what it means to live in a community like Paul. So you have marriage mistakes, you have marriage missteps. No marriage is perfect, but your marriage is down the line a little bit. You're able to handle the marriage missteps. But these two people who just said, I do, need some help. So you can shine the light because of everything that you've learned so they don't make the same mistakes you did. Our broken places that we all have can be used to shine light onto other people in their broken places. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Our broken places can be used to shine light on other people's broken places. This is how grace reflects. Grace informs us. We've been given grace. Grace exposes us. And then once the grace exposes us, we take everything and say, Lord, shine your light, repair me, heal me, so that I can be used in my broken places to reflect and to help people along. Because when we meet this grace, when we meet Jesus, we're not supposed to stay stationary. We're called to a movement. This grace moves us. It takes us from point A to point whenever we meet Jesus face to face. We are all works in progress. We're all like the house that my dad saw, where he walks in, and, and, and if we can spiritualize the heck out of it, it's like Jesus walks into this house. I'm not calling my dad Jesus. But when he walks into this house and says, yes, all the structural pieces are here. And there's this thing here called lying that I can knock out and I can make the kitchen bigger. And there's room in your heart where this, there's deep-seated anger. I can fix that. And I can knock that wall out and bring the plumbing here. And that'll be a great laundry room. And then I can raise the ceiling here. And I can build a loft where, where, where you have fear and anxiety. I can build that up and that'll be a great office. But first we have to let the grace come in. We have to invite him in and say, go to work, expose and form and allow that grace to change. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that all of us are works in progress. That you just don't call us and leave us. It says in Philippians that you are working with us until the day that we meet you face to face. We are all under construction as the cheesy bumper sticker says. But Lord, allow your grace to penetrate our hearts. 
allow it to inform us. Allow it to expose us. Lord, uh, Lord I pray your grace would push us uh, to becoming more and more like you. Why? Because we are already your kids. And we look like you. And so, Lord, as we're marked and saved by grace, allow us to be grace to people around us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.